But first of all, we have to look to God in prayer. Now, our fathers, we're coming again before you this time on an Easter Sunday, looking into the significance and the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're asking that our eyes, our minds, our hearts, everything be in in accordance and sync with one another because we're about to explore what matters most. Keep us from allowing our minds to start grappling with things that don't matter to the same degree. Allow us now to concentrate on the most significant series of events in history, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and how they need to be understood in relationship to each other. These moments together are important. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills as we've come here now again to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in in Jesus' name. Amen. Ray Bakke tells the story of an old Glasgow professor named MacDonald, who along with a Scottish chaplain had bailed out of an airplane behind German lines during World War II. They were put in a prison camp. High wire fence separated the Americans from the British, and the Nazis made it next to impossible for the two sides to even communicate. McDonald was put in the American barracks. The chaplain was housed with the Brits. Every day, the two men would meet at the fence and exchange a greeting. Unknown to the guards, the Americans had a little homemade radio and were able to get news from the outside, something incredibly more precious than food in a prison camp. Every day, McDowell would take a headline or two to the fence and share it with the chaplain in the ancient Gaelic language, indecipherable to the Nazis. But then one day, One day news came over the little radio that the Nazi high command had surrendered and the war was over. MacDonald took the news to his friend and then stood and watched as his friend began to lift his arm up with the sign of victor and disappear into the British barracks. A moment later, and a roar of celebration came from the barracks as man after man came out with the signs of victory being extended upward toward the heavens. Bakke goes on to write, life in their camp was transformed. Men walked around singing and shouting, waving at the gods, even laughing at the dogs. And when the Nazi gods finally heard the news three days later, they fled into the dark, leaving the gates unlocked. 
The next morning, Brits and Americans walked out as free men. Yet they had truly been set free three days earlier by the news that the war was over. Now, what we find at this point in this resurrection account is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ validates the truth that the war is over. The penalty for sin has been paid. What I want to do with you now is to take this resurrection story and begin to think it through seriously with you because I see four critical needs that humanity faces that have got to be addressed in these verses. And if we think them through carefully and seriously, I believe we're better equipped then to be able to navigate through life and embrace what's here. The first of the four needs is found in verses 1 through 3, and we're going to put it like this. The number one is we reflect upon Christ's victory over death. Note with me the material evidence that we need here to consider. We are told at this point that it's the first day, the first day of the week. It's early dawn. When I see the first day of the week, what immediately grips my attention is the fact that the idea of the first day is utilized again and again and again throughout the scriptures. Louis Schaefer, in his book, Grace, spots 11 events that deal with first day phenomena. First and most obvious, the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the dead. On the first day of the week, the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven for the first time. On the first day of the week, Jesus appeared to the disciples for the first time while they were in the upper room and bestowed upon them peace. On the first day of the week, Jesus first broke bread with his disciples in a post-resurrection observance of the communion service. On the first day of the week, Jesus commissioned his disciples to the task of world evangelism in John chapter 20, verse 21. On the first day of the week, seven weeks after the resurrection at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descended from heaven. And one that would seize the attention of some of our family members when three of us were on the Isle of Patmos in Greece months back. On the first day of the week, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos and gave a revelation of himself in his present heavenly glory. First day phenomena, first day emphases are significant, you see, because God has etched into time the fact that something of significance has happened in accordance to what you and I see here as a first day event. So now, we begin to explore this together, and we see that it is the first day. It's early dawn. They went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. What stands out to me, among other things, when you're dealing with the whole matter of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is that the followers of Jesus Christ were not expecting this. 
So the women are coming with their spices in keeping with Jewish tradition of caring for the deceased body. When something grips their attention, and we see it here in verse 2. Notice the material evidence. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Pause. Now, those that have tracked through the years understand that this stone was roughly about one ton in weight. The Roman strategy was to set this stone on an inclined groove, held in place by a wedge, and then at the appropriate time, wedge removed, and the force of gravity takes over, and the stone rolls and seals itself in front of this tomb, incapable for one to get in. This would then keep the followers of Jesus Christ from being in the minds of the Roman population from claiming that he had risen from the dead. They thought everything was covered and cared for, and the Jewish authorities would think likewise. Second bit of material evidence. Beyond that one-ton stone would be the Roman seal cord would be wrapped around this stone. It would be wrapped around at the largest place, point of the stone. And then there would be the Roman seal, the emperor's seal, that would be attached to this with the understanding that if anybody broke this seal, it would cost them their life. Another piece of material evidence. Thirdly, in terms of material evidence, what I want you now to see at this point is that the stone has rolled away. It's not there. The seal has been broken. And we've got to begin to ask some serious questions as to how and why. Now, as far as I can determine, there are only three possible options. It left, number one, on its own, which means it would have to roll itself back up. Number two, it would have to be removed by human hands. But now the question is, with which set of human hands? Because the Jewish authorities were fully invested in making absolutely certain that body was in the tomb. Furthermore, the Romans want to make absolutely certain that body's in the tomb because Jesus Christ, in their estimation, was a threat to Caesar. Furthermore, the gods have vested interest in keeping that body in the tomb because their lives were at stake. But the stone... One ton stone has been removed. And Matthew's account, and I've got all four accounts in front of me now, gospel accounts. In verse 2 of the 28th chapter, Matthew tells us, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. Angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Now you and I ask, and I ask questions such as, why? 
Is it to get Jesus out? Answer is no. Because you see, in the post-resurrection appearances, Jesus did not even need a door to go through to appear before the disciples in the upper room. The purpose was not to get Jesus out of the tomb. The purpose was to get his followers into the tomb in order to examine the evidence, which is the beauty of Christianity, you see, because there's no cover-up. It's on full display evidence-wise for people to evaluate, examine, and process what's here. So you ask yourself, well, what was the vested interest of having this body removed? And nobody has vested interest. Would the disciples want to claim resurrection when they themselves were so incredibly timid, when it would cost them their own lives on the street of Jerusalem unless they knew this were true? They're not going to die for the sake of a lie. Well, the only other option then is that God has intervened. And so you are in the process of putting together the whole question of evidence that you and I need to consider, that I believe humanity needs to consider. And Billy Graham faced this with Conrad Adenauer before Adenauer retired as the Chancellor of Germany. Billy Graham says that when I walked in, I expected to meet a tall, stiff, formal man who might even be embarrassed if I brought up the subject of Christianity. And after the greeting, the chancellor suddenly turned to me and said, Mr. Graham, what is the most important thing in the world? And before I could answer, he had answered his own question. He said, if Jesus Christ is alive, there is hope for the world. If Jesus Christ is in the grave, then I do not see the slightest glimmer of hope on the horizon. And then he amazed me by saying that he believed that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was one of the best attested facts of all history. He said, when I leave office, I intend to spend the rest of my life gathering proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you come here this morning spiritually curious or perhaps even a skeptic, I'm so glad you're here. You're welcome. We want you to process what's here because you're not getting pastoral opinions. You're examining texts. You're examining evidence. And you're forcing yourself to deal with what matters most. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But now notice very carefully at verse 3 at this point, Luke, the physician, goes on to write, but, always love that word in the Bible, but when they went in, purpose of the stone being removed is not to get Jesus out, but to get them in. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So now, there you have it. There's the first of these issues that you and I have got to address at this point. The material evidence. You're reflecting upon Jesus Christ's victory over death. This world is one prisoner of war camp. 
And what we see here in this story are people beginning to lift their arms, arguing for the victor. You're seeing here the material evidence that we have to consider, and that is why even on that cross, there would be this thief who would cry out to Jesus, remember me when you, when you come into your kingdom. But now you and I get a chance to explore a second need that humanity has got to address. It's found in verses 4 and 5. That as we reflect upon Jesus Christ's victory over death, note second of all with me, the critical question you and I, we need to answer. Now you're coupling material evidence in 1 through 3 with the critical question that's posed in verse 4 and verse 5. But we've got to inch into it, don't we? It says, while they were perplexed about this, pause button, God has allowed for the material evidence now to be opened up. They are standing in this tomb. The stone has been removed by God's grace, not for Christ's purpose, but for their purpose. They're looking at the evidence, and they're confused. Maybe that's where you came this morning. You've begun to explore the evidence, but you've still got a lot of questions. Well, now, there is a critical question that's posed in verses 4 and 5 that you're going to have to take the evidence of 1 through 3 and begin to answer in your own mind, in your own heart. And this requires intellectual credibility on your part to address these issues in a way that produces an exclamation point, not a question mark. They're perplexed. We're being honest about this. And so many people are about life, about this world, about the meaning and the purpose of all this. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Now, the Greek word here for the dazzling apparel is the same word which was used to describe the apparel of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Interesting. Curious with the idea, then, that somebody has been in the presence of the glory of God. And it is so obvious and so evident, there's a brightness to all. And so they are visually confronted with the brightness of those that have been in the presence of God. What do they do? In verse 5, you and I are told, they're frightened, you see. They're frightened. They bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, and here's your question of the hour. Why do you seek the living among the dead? I believe this is the most significant question the secularist has got to be able to answer. I believe this is the most important question the religionist needs to be able to answer. Because it's possible to be a secular unbeliever, it's possible to be a religious unbeliever. You've got to be able to answer this question. C.S. Lewis, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. 
I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a, a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being simply a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And for those that simply treat Jesus Christ as nothing more than a great moral teacher, what they're doing is seeking the living among the dead. He was a teacher, but he was so much more than a teacher. There are critical questions in life that need to be answered. And there are critical questions in this text that I believe need to be answered. I've jotted some of them down that I've processed through the years. If Jesus had remained dead, question number one, how does one explain the displaced stone? If Jesus had remained dead, question number two, how does one explain the empty tomb? If Jesus had remained dead, question three, how does one explain why 500 plus say they saw him? If Jesus had remained dead, question four, how does one explain the credibility of the witnesses? If Jesus had remained dead, question five, how does one explain the inability of his opponents to refute the claims and produce the body? And if Jesus remained dead, number six, how does one explain the transformed lives of his followers? Would one really risk his life for the sake of a lie, arguing for a resurrection if it did not occur? That's untenable. So now you and I are thinking seriously about critical questions. This is exactly what had to happen to Lou Wallace. Lou Wallace was close friends with Robert Ingersoll, a renowned atheist. They were riding in a prior era on a train, and as they approached St. Louis, they were talking about Ingersoll's next lecture tour where he would be attacking belief in God. Wallace, Ingersoll said, look at those church steeples here in St. Louis. What a waste of money. You and I both know Christ did not really exist. Someone should tell the masses how foolish it is to worship a myth. It's a shame, agreed Wallace. 
Lubon should write a book and prove to the world once and for all that Jesus Christ was nothing but a mythical figure, much less the Son of God, Ingersoll suggested. All right, Wallace replied, I believe I will. Lou Wallace spent a lot of time and money investigating every shred of evidence that he could find. Reading, reading now from his biography, he read numerous books. He examined many ancient manuscripts. He invested and visited the Holy Land. He studied the Bible, and something strange happened to Lou Wallace. The more he studied, the more evidence he discovered. He searched more intently and more reverently and found the evidence to be irrefutable. He concluded that Jesus Christ was one of the best documented figures of history. And so he returned and with another conversation with Ingersoll and said, the more I have studied, the more I'm convinced that Jesus was more than man until one day, he told Ingersoll, I was forced to cry this was the Son of God. Don't be afraid of tough questions. But don't be afraid of quality answers based upon evidence. As we reflect upon Christ's victory over death, and you're pondering the historic significance of the POWs leaving a camp that has the, has the air of death permeating it. And as they lift their arms with a sense of victory, the victor has arrived. You're pondering the material evidence of one through three, and you're pondering the critical question we need to answer in verses four and five. Why do you seek the living among the dead? But now you're ready, now you're ready for the next one. Because thirdly, coming out of verses six to eight, as we reflect upon Christ's death, his victory over death. Now thirdly, but we'll call here the essential truths that we need to believe. And we can spot three of them. Can you? Now the response to the perplexed at this point is He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man, here's your first, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. Here's your second, and be crucified. Here's your third, and be raised. And on the third day, rise. I say be raised because it carries with it the essence of what the Greek wording is. Years ago, was able to teach through the book of Mark on Sunday mornings. And what we highlighted when we got to chapters 8, 9, and 10 was that there were three significant, powerful statements in Jesus' journey to the cross after Peter attested to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Mark, in the 8th chapter, Jesus began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected in the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. 
And Mark tells us he said this plainly. In Mark 9, in verse 31, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. In Mark 10, we find him in verse 33, as he's inching closer to Jerusalem, saying, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock, spit him on him, flog him, kill him, and after three days he will arise. Three significant statements about three days later, and you tie it to an event of recent history where POWs leave a Nazi camp, and they're pondering what had taken place three days later as they are raising their arms in victory. The victor has come. The war is over. Back to the biblical text. The penalty is paid. You see the material evidence in verses 1 through 3. You ponder the critical question we need to answer in verses 4 and 5. And furthermore, you're examining here what we might call the essential truths, the essential facts, if you will, that are, that are being put before us here in these verses. I love what J. Gresham Machen once remarked. Christianity, he wrote, is not built on a complex of ideas, but on historical facts. Frank Morrison produced a book as a lawyer who was atheistic when he began to write entitled, Who Moved the Stone? He began to treat analytically the last week of the life of Christ. Began to study with the avowed purpose of destroying the delusion in his estimation of belief in the resurrection. And he expected, now according to a, a writer analyzing his work, that a careful scrutiny of the evidence would prove the belief to be unfounded. And although Morrison proceeded on purely rationalistic grounds without the assumption of the inspiration of the scriptures, the sheer weight of the evidence of the gospels drove him to conclusions completely opposite to the aims with which he started. And after searching the examining all the facts, he concluded with this statement. There may be, and as the writer thinks, there certainly is, a profoundly historical basis for that sentence in the Apostles' Creed. The third day, he rose again from the dead. It's interesting to me how time-conscious God is about these things. In my study of church history, what captures my attention is that the earliest Christians celebrated the resurrection on the 14th of Nisan, the Jewish calendar, the date of the Jewish Passover. We've been covering the book of Esther on Sunday mornings. When was Haman attempting to have the Jews annihilated? At this date. What happened? 
the great reversal occurred. And what was intended for death became an opportunity for life. God has a way of superintending the events of history and time. And if he can do that historically, then he can look at your life and do it personally and weave together an understanding of what all of this means. But you're asking, Gary, what does all of this mean? Once you've pondered the questions that we have attempted to consider earlier, consider these truths that you're going to have to embrace. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the sole means of salvation. Jesus has eternal life to share. God's plan for this world will succeed. Death is defeated. Death will die. Behind my desk sit the works of John Owen, the great Puritan. When he lay on his deathbed, his secretary wrote in his name to a friend, I am still in the land of the living. Stop, said Owen. Change that. And say, I am yet in the land of the dying. But I hope soon to be in the land of the living. Can you embrace that this morning? Now you're ready for the fourth of these needs that I consider the needs for humanity. A quick review. One through three, the material evidence we need to consider. Second of all, the critical question we need to answer. Thirdly, the essential truths, facts we need to believe, but here comes your fourth. Comes out of nine through twelve. That fourthly, As we reflect upon Christ's victory over death, note what I'll call here the social conformities we need to resist. You might be part of a group at work. Maybe your group is your family. Maybe your group is at school. And there is a resistance to what we're talking about right now. I want you to see Peter's reaction to groupthink. In verse 9, returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, the same women who in Luke chapter 8 verses 1 through 3 were tending to Jesus. They have stayed with him the entire way. But in verse 11, you and I are informed, these words seem to them, the apostles, an idle tale. They didn't believe them. If you've got timid apostles right now in the upper room, then ponder that question I posed earlier. If Jesus had remained dead, How does one explain the transformed lives of his followers? Because you will find Peter, John, out on the streets of Jerusalem 
proclaiming the fact that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And this brings such incredible hope to the soul of Peter that he eventually write, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! Exclamation point. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you have a living hope? Or a dead hope? If you've got a living Savior, you've got a living hope. Don't go looking for the living among the dead. He's not here. They were told. He's risen. What I want you to see is Peter's resistance to groupthink. The same one who is willing to get out of the boat while everybody else remained in it gets out of the upper room while everybody else remains in it, though he takes his good buddy, the Apostle John, along. Why does he rise and run? Because the women had been told to say to the disciples, go tell his disciples, on Peter, he's going before you into Galilee. There you'll see him just as he said to you. What does that do for your heart? See how personal Jesus Christ is. He knows where you're at. There's a wounded man who had denied his relationship with Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times, even though not once, but twice, but three times he had heard Jesus Christ talk about on the third day, not the second, the third day, being raised from the dead. Man, he's running. Peter rose, ran to the tomb. Notice what he's doing here at this point. He's back to uh, our first critical need. Stooping and looking in. Material evidence. Saw the linen cloths by themselves. And went home, marveling at what had happened. Which means no matter what stage of life you're in, think for yourself. Don't do groupthink when it comes to matters of belief. Go to the scriptures. Go to the cross and examine what is here based upon the evidence of a living Savior. For you see, when they left the barracks of that Nazi camp, they were not defeated men. Their arms were lifted. The victor had arrived. As the worship team comes forward, let's look to the Lord in prayer. So, our Father, we're thanking you now for this time together. And on this Resurrection Sunday, we're giving you all the praise for who you are and all the praise for what you've done. Because it's for you, to you, the glory is given. He is risen. He is risen indeed. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.